first epistle of Peter. We'll start there and then we'll be moving around in a few different places this morning. First epistle of Peter in chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 17 to 22, or 70 to 21, rather. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. If you address Father, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers. But with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we look at this glorious topic, this glorious subject of the resurrection and redemption of Jesus Christ, help us to understand, help us to focus, help us to remember your word and the things which we will be taught this morning. Help us to apply them to our lives. And please help me that my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In this passage of First uh, Peter 1, um, in verses 17 to 21, and the surrounding verses of this first chapter of Peter's first epistle, the apostle Peter is calling on believers to endure the persecutions they are experiencing. And he calls them to endure those persecutions, those trials, by living holy lives of fear and reverence for God in light of the perfect redemption of Jesus Christ so that their faith and hope would not lie in their circumstances, but in God who is perfect in every attribute and action and has sent His perfect Son to redeem them from their sins and from this sin-cursed world. And in preparing for celebration of Resurrection Sunday and Holy Week, uh, Resurrection Sunday being today, we, in a sense, have been doing the same thing over the past couple weeks as we looked at the perfect life of Christ two weeks ago. And then last week I did a message on the perfect death of Christ. And this morning in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be looking at the perfect redemption of Christ. And in preparing for this message, I couldn't help but to continually think about that second verse in Fanny Crosby's famous hymn, To God Be the Glory, which reads, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. 
And then the refrain as well, the, the chorus, which ought to be our continual response to this perfect redemption of Christ. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He hath done. And so this morning... We want to give Jesus Christ the glory for the great things he has done. And we will do that by looking at three aspects of the perfect redemption of Christ. Or rather, three ways in which Jesus Christ is the perfect redeemer. Jesus Christ is the perfect redeemer. We know him as redeemer, as Lord. Um, even some churches uh, will name their church uh, redeemer uh, Baptist Church, or Redeemer Bible Church, or Redeemer Presbyterian Church, or uh, the Redeemer King, or, or something along the lines of the Redeemer. And Jesus Christ is the perfect Redeemer. He is the perfect Redeemer of sinners, first and foremost. We see the perfect redemption of Christ in the fact that He is the perfect Redeemer of sinners. Which implies two things. First, that there are sinners in the world. And second, that they need a redeemer to save them from their sins. And redeem them from the consequences of sins. You know, sometimes when you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone, and particularly the fact that they are a sinner in need of a savior, sometimes they will respond by saying, well, you know, we're all sinners. Almost as if to say, I'm no, worse, I'm no worse than most people. And in fact, even though I am a sinner, I'm actually better than other sinners. And so, you know, if you're wise, you respond by saying, that may be true, but you're still a sinner. You're still a sinner. And God is still holy. And God must punish every sin perfectly to uphold his perfect justice. Therefore, you need a perfect redeemer. A perfect redeemer who lived a perfect life which you could not live in order to be the perfect sacrifice for your sins and die the perfect death which you deserve to die so that God could be both just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ because he is the perfect redeemer of sinners. And he is the perfect redeemer of sinners because first he is the redeemer of sinful mankind he is the redeemer of sinful mankind the bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god meaning that we don't meet the standard all have sinned and therefore all deserve god's punishment for sins deserve god's wrath for sins, because God is righteous and holy. But in what is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Which does not mean that He is the Redeemer of everyone, because many do go to hell. Even Jesus himself said that 
the, 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 the gate is wide and, and the path is broad that leads to destruction, there are many on it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to eternal life and there are few who find it. John 3.16 doesn't mean that Jesus is the redeemer of everyone, but he is the redeemer of anyone. Anyone uh, who would come to him, who would repent and believe. Anyone without distinctions, divisions, or qualifications, except the fact that you repent from your sins and you believe upon him. You see, the Jews um, had a problem because they rightfully knew that they were the chosen people, God's chosen people. But they wrongfully thought that God only um, brought salvation to them. That, that God desired from the beginning to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Anyone who would repent and believe, who would seek him while he may be found, who would call upon him while he is near. He is the only redeemer of sinful mankind, of whoever believes in him. Whereas Paul writes, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. There's only one redeemer. And as Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer of sinners. And he is a redeemer of sinful mankind. He's the only redeemer of sinful mankind. Second, he is a perfect redeemer of sinners because he is the redeemer of his sinful people. Of his sinful people. John 10, and as Jesus um, is speaking to the Pharisees and the self-righteous Jews and even his disciples and all who would come and hear him, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And that's exactly what he did. He laid down his life for his sheep, for his sheep, a particular people, the people that would come to him, the people that would recognize their need for a Savior, would recognize their own depravity, their own sinfulness, and seek God and call upon him for forgiveness, for mercy, for grace and receive this great salvation. Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer of sinners because he is the redeemer of sinful mankind. And second, because he is the redeemer of his sinful people. And third, because he is the redeemer of their sinful flesh. It's not just that God would save us through Jesus Christ of our sins and the penalty of our sins. But he would also save us. He will save us. And he is saving us from the effects of sin. Romans 6. As Paul explains what had happened 
um, and salvation in, in this mysterious union of believers with Jesus Christ and how we are to live in this world for the rest of our time in this sin-cursed world as we still struggle with sin. He explains this concept of union with Christ and he says in Romans 6 and verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. There's this mysterious union of believers with Jesus Christ because God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, what theologians and pastors call the great exchange. Our perfect substitute, our perfect redeemer that lived a life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve to die. And in doing so, it was as if he died uh, for us as if all our sins were heaped upon him so that his righteousness could be credited to our account. We're in union with him. And just as he died and was raised up, we in a sense who have repented and believed upon him, have been born again, have died with him, and will be raised up as well. The Puritan Tom and Thomas Watson wrote in his um, Body of Divinity, that the doctrine of redemption by Jesus Christ is a glorious doctrine. It is the marrow and quintessence of the gospel in which all a Christian's comfort lies. All of our comfort, all of our hope, all of our trust lies in the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners such as us. As Paul, almost in a sense, Paul giving his personal salvation testimony in, uh, to Timothy as he writes the first epistle to Timothy, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, and this could also be many of our testimonies as well. It's certainly uh, my life verse. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe upon him. He is the Savior of sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come for uh, the righteous people even though there are none. He came to seek and to save sinners. And so the first and primary aspect of the redemption, the perfect redemption of Christ, is that Jesus Christ is the perfect redeemer of sinners. And second, Jesus Christ is the perfect redeemer of history. 
which may sound weird, but uh, he is the perfect redeemer of history because he is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. You see, uh, salvation wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a plan B. God had determined from eternity past to save sinners. He, in a sense, uh, allowed the fall to happen. Though he is not the author of sin, though he is not the author of evil, he uses evil. Some people will, will um, in effect, uh, give an objection to faith in Christ with uh, what they call the problem of evil. The problem of evil is not a problem with God. It's not a problem with God at all. It's a problem with those who don't believe in good and evil. Without a perfect, moral, upright God, there, there, there can't be, in a sense, there's no concept of good and evil. God uses evil for his good, though he is not the author of evil. And he had planned all throughout uh, history, from eternity past, to save sinners. He ordains all things to come to pass. And he uses it for the good of his people and for his glory. He is the culmination of God's plan of redemption, uh, which began in eternity past, was first announced in the garden uh, right after the fall in Genesis 3.15 as, as God confronts Adam and Eve and Satan concerning the fall. And he tells Adam and Eve, he tells Satan in a sense, uh, the seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. There will be a redeemer. It was first announced then, and, and then it was foreshadowed in Noah. It was forecasted in Abraham, and it was foretold throughout the whole Old Testament that there would be a perfect redeemer. So that Paul can write in Galatians 4 and verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus Christ is the perfect redeemer of history because he is a culmination of God's plan of redemption. He came at the perfect time. And you know, some people might uh, look back and think, well, you know, why didn't God, you know, if he, he could have sent his son during modern times, we, we would have video. We would have recording. We, we would know for sure. No, he came at the perfect time. And what was happening in Palestine and the Roman occupation and just the history of the Jews at that time, it was the perfect timing. He came in the fullness of time. He, he is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. Second, he is a perfect redeemer of history because he is a conquering redeemer king. He is a conquering redeemer king. You know, one of the reasons why the Jews didn't receive their king and crucify him, ended up rejecting him and crucifying him, is because they mistook the uh, first coming for the second coming, or they expected the second coming during his first coming. They, they didn't pay attention to uh, many of the passages in the Old Testament concerning his substitutionary death, his, the, the suffering servant. I want you to see this. Turn with me to Isaiah 62. 
in Isaiah 62, and, and much of the, the latter half or the latter third of Isaiah speaks of Jesus Christ, speaks of his redemption, speaks of his nature. And it, sometimes prophecy is like looking at a mountain range where you see all these mountains and these peaks and from far away you don't really know which one is closer or further. But as you get closer into the mountain range and even go through the mountain range, then you see which one's close, which one's further, the distance apart. And so prophecy is, is kind of like that. We, we don't really see it all until it unfolds. We, we can, some of it's more clear than others. And so sometimes this, the first and second comings of Jesus were kind of indistinguishable. But in Isaiah 62 and verse 11, it says this, Behold, Yahweh has announced to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Who, the, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your clothing red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my clothes for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. Saying, in a sense, uh, God speaking through Isaiah, and almost as if Jesus himself is speaking, that... You, my people, could not save yourself. You, you just continue to show your own sinfulness through uh, transgressing my law, through your idolatry. So my own arm brought salvation to me. Jesus did it, and he would do it. He would do it at his first coming, and he would complete it at his second coming. He is the perfect redeemer of history because he is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. He is a conquering redeemer king and he is the climax of redemptive history. He's the climax of redemptive history from beginning to end, from uh, the, the foreshadowing of types in the Old Testament and the, the prophecies foretelling him, the sacrificial system to his earthly ministry and, and the rest of the New Testament to eternity past. Ephesians 1 tells us about it. This it, it, it points us to this climax of redemptive history, starting in the eternity past and reaching forward to eternity future. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the, according to the riches of His grace, which He caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things 
on the earth in him. He came in the fullness of time and he will uh, complete redemption in the fullness of the times. Summing up all things in him. All things will come together. We'll see, uh, will make sense. We'll be reconciled in Christ Jesus at the end. Charles Spurgeon, he says this. He says, we gather together on the first rather than the seventh day of the week. Because redemption is even a greater work than creation and more worthy of commemoration. And because the rest which followed creation is far outdone by the rest which ensues upon the completion of redemption. As, as many have said, we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That uh, redemption just, doesn't just stop at um, being forgiven of our sins, but he will redeem us of our sinful flesh. He will redeem this sin-cursed world. He will reconcile all things to himself. Which brings us to the third aspect of the perfect redemption of Christ. Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer of sinners. He is a perfect redeemer of history. And third, Jesus Christ is the perfect redeemer of creation. He's the perfect redeemer of creation because he redeems sin-cursed image bearers. You know, from the beginning and soon after the fall, people looked for a redeemer. People looked for a redeemer, someone to save them, someone to fix this sin-cursed world, this brokenness of the world, the brokenness of my own flesh and, and my own thoughts and, and my relationships and everything that sin has corrupted. We see that in Genesis 3.15. And, and soon after that, as we see the, the, the first murder, Cain and Abel and, and the, the, the sin that would unfold after that. And, and then uh, Genesis 5, which is called the, the graveyard chapter. Because we hear so-and-so lived such and such years and he died. So-and-so lived such and such years and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's why we died. But in Genesis 5... Verse 28, it says this about one man. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands rising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. There's, there's hope in Noah. But, but that hope would not be, it would not be realized completely. It is in a sense that he would point uh, forward to a greater redemption. And then in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his suffering, you know, Job, which is chronologically the first book of the Bible, is Job, the, the first one was, that was written around the time of Abraham. And in the midst of his suffering, Job as a righteous man, you know, his hope, Job's only hope, was that there would be a redeemer. Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. He knew that he would not only be redeemed from sin, 
but he would be redeemed from the effects of sin, from this sin-cursed world. And he would behold God face to face in his own flesh, in, in a glorified flesh, in a new flesh, in a flesh that wasn't racked with sin or even the effects of sin and suffering. Second, Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer of creation because he will redeem a sin-cursed earth. He not only redeems sin-cursed image bearers and the effects of sin in giving us glorified bodies for those who repent and believe in Him, but His redemption extends even further to the creation to reverse the effects of the curse. Because even uh, as, as God tells uh, Adam and Eve that the ground will uh, no longer uh, yield as it once did, but it will produce thorns and thistles. Meaning that um, now work will be hard. From the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread. And we see that curse. We see the effects of the curse in this, this world. Through disease, through famine, through deformity. You know, I, I remember uh, I, I got braces as an adult in my 30s. And I went to a really good orthodontist and they had a good practice and so on their wall um, they were really business minded and so they had a lot of before and after pictures and uh, you know most people aren't born with perfectly straight teeth <laughs> and uh, but there was some really bad ones um, teeth almost sideways just almost sad um, and they had no you know it wasn't their fault it was, that's what they were born with it was a, a deformity in their teeth, but then they would have the after pictures. And, and it was just such a beautiful picture of redemption that they would straighten out those teeth. But um, for many of us, we have, you know, there's people in this world who have disabilities, deformities, diseases that cannot be straightened out. Our sin and our sin nature cannot be straightened out by ourselves, only by a perfect redeemer. We need redemption of our souls and we need redemption of our flesh and this sin cursed world needs redemption and likewise just as you know I've seen deformities and disabilities in humans you know what's what's sad is that if you know you ever go on a nature walk once in a while you'll see a tree which with some form of tumor or a deformity that's growing on it that tree did not sin but it's the effects of sin on this sin-cursed world. But the Apostle Paul, he writes in Romans chapter 8, which is a chapter of hope. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our body. It's not just our own sin that we suffer under, but the sins of others, people that have sinned against us, and just this broken, sin-cursed world that things don't work the way they should. We, we see that most often in society um, amongst the nations who rage against one another, but even in disease, in famine, in uh, just corruption in this world, in, in the very uh, elements of this world. But Jesus is a perfect redeemer. He, he doesn't just redeem us spiritually. He will redeem us physically. And he will redeem this whole world. He is a perfect redeemer of creation because he redeems sin-cursed image bearers. Because he will redeem a sin-cursed earth. And third, because he will redeem a holy city. He will redeem a holy city. Which, you know, just saying that, you know, most of you are, are already tracking that I'm referring to Jerusalem. But just saying the holy city, why, why does a holy city need to be redeemed? Well, it's holy because it was set apart, which is what holiness means. Holiness does mean purity, but it also means set apart for a purpose, for a special purpose. And Jerusalem itself was set apart as God's capital, where redemption would be realized, where a king would reign, where his people would gather to worship and yet, all throughout Israel's history, we see that it was corrupted by sin, by idolatry, by transgression, by disobeying his law. You remember that passage at the end of Isaiah 62, where it talks about Jesus coming as a conquering, redeemer king. Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we see this where that prophecy is fulfilled. At the end of that chapter, in verse 11, it says this, as John is receiving this vision um, of the end times on the Isle of Patmos where he's exiled, where he's uh, for his faith. He says this, Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes to redeem a sin-cursed earth. He comes to redeem a holy city, because down in Revelation 21, it says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. 
There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Making all things new. Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer of sinners. He is a perfect redeemer of history. And he is a perfect redeemer of creation. He is a perfect redeemer because he will redeem it all. He will redeem it all. Everything. And today is Sunday, the first day of the week, the day which the early church called the Lord's Day because it was the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. And ever since then, it has been the day on which we worship Him. But even more significantly, it is the day in which Jesus rose from the dead because it is the first day. Because it's the first day. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God created the world on the first day, and Jesus Christ accomplished redemption, or rather, recreation on the first day. And I would not be surprised if He creates the new heavens and the new earth on the first day. This is Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. Because Jesus Christ was risen on Sunday, accomplished redemption on Sunday, initiated recreation on Sunday. And chances are he'll uh, complete it on Sunday. Author John Boyce, he says this, The resurrection of Christ is the amen of all his promises. That's our trust and our hope that that perfect sacrifice was accepted. And that as he was raised up, we will also be raised up with him. And I read a little bit of this uh, in our scripture reading, but it's what is probably the most comprehensive account of the resurrection and redemption in 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter. And and I would commend to you to read that um, this week, to meditate upon that, to look at that 1 Corinthians 15. But In verse 19, Paul says this, Apostle Paul says this in teaching the Corinthians about the resurrection and all the implications and the applications that follow it. He says this, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You know, people come to church. Um, They come to Christian churches and and even, you know, any sort of religion for all sorts of reasons. Um, Some people, it's community. Um, We do need community. It's not good that man be alone. Um, we, we need fellowship, we need one another, um, and, and church provides that. But there's also a sense of every human being has a sense of morality, um, of justice, and knows, in a sense, as Solomon says, God has placed eternity in man's heart. And, and so there is a sense that we know intuitively that there is a judgment, and we know that we should do good. And so some people come to church to do good 
to feel good. And certainly church provides that. But as Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. And what he means by that is, in a sense, if we come to church, if we do religious things, if we pray to God for all our needs, which are right and good, that we do have needs, and we do pray for those needs, but if our hope is only in this life only, our hope in God is only for this life, only getting through this life, only feeling good about ourselves in this life, only um, trying to be an upstanding citizen or a good person or a good neighbor or just to somehow balance the scales, if that's the extent of our hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. But our hope in Christ is because He is a perfect Redeemer. Because he offers salvation to all sinners, to all who would come to him, who would recognize their need for a redeemer, their need for redemption, to recognize the fact that they are broken, they are sinful, and they will stand before the bar of God. One day we will all be judged, as Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. You will be judged. Jesus said he will... He will uh, judge you for every careless word. Solomon said he will bring every act into judgment. The inner thoughts, all of it. God is perfect in all his attributes. He is a perfect judge. And so it doesn't take long to search your heart and mind and know that you have sinned against this perfect judge. And unless you come to Christ as a redeemer, you will bear the punishment for your sins in hell for all eternity because God is righteous and he is righteous to do that. He is good to do that. He's good to send people to hell because they have sinned against him. And justice must happen. But he's also good to send a savior, to send a redeemer. And you can have this redemption. You can have this redemption if you, as Romans 10.9 says, if you, confess your, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved. See, he goes back to the resurrection. That, that someone must pay for your sins, either you or Christ. And Christ paid for the sins of all those who would repent and believe in him. And he shows that that payment was, uh, was satisfactory. It was sufficient because he was then raised from the dead. And Paul goes on in Romans 10, verse 10, he says, For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So for those who are outside of Christ, the call is to Seek him while he may be found to call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and, and, and the Lord will pardon him, will abundantly pardon. Jesus Christ loves to save sinners. And, and that gospel, that gospel message, that, that message of salvation is, is not just for those outside of Christ, but it's for a reminder for those of us in Christ that we have an eternal hope. 
And that hope is fixed in the heavens where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us, waiting for the time in which he will return to rule and reign in righteousness and to perfectly redeem all things to himself. So let us walk in that, let us live in that, let us rest in that, let us hope in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Now you have sent us a redeemer. That there is hope. There is hope for mankind. There is hope that we can escape judgment. And more than just escaping judgment, more than just escaping hell, we can behold your glory through Jesus Christ. So Lord, if there's anyone here, I pray that through your spirit you would work mightily in their hearts and minds to draw them to yourself Convict them of their sin, of their need for a Savior, and call them to your side and cause them to be born again, that they may know you as their glorious Savior. And for those of us who do know you as our glorious, perfect Redeemer, help us to glorify you with our lives, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and to take every opportunity to proclaim this glorious gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.